How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? amen. Good to see you all here today. Uh, this has been an eventful week. I was fine. You saw me last Sunday, I was fine. Tuesday morning I woke up and I was fine. Felt great, matter of fact. Worked out. Spent the morning in prayer. Had my shando time with Jesus. We had staff meetings. Staff meeting went better than normal. And uh, Sonny comes in and says, let's go watch uh, Spider-Man. I was like, let's go. Alethea wanted to see it, so we went to watch Spider-Man. And um, went and had a wonderful lunch after Spider-Man. And the next thing I knew, these waves of vertigo started coming over me. And I thought, oh, no, what is this? Not again. Come on, what's going on? Um, next thing I knew, Sonny was calling 911. And I was lying on my face on the uh, carpet in the dining room, and I couldn't move. I couldn't get up. I couldn't walk. I couldn't crawl. Uh, and uh, this is the third time that I've gone through uh, this type of a thing. Third time, third episode since 2016. So 2016, 2019, and now 2023. The thing that has occurred to me and I want all of you young people to listen to me today because I don't want you young people to think you're in an adult service, so just tune out. This is especially for you young people today. I have some important things to say to you. What I realized is that each one of these occurrences was a turning point that required a lifestyle change. And I realized that in the past two I had not fully understood the lifestyle change that was required of me in order to maintain, in order not to go through this again. This time, a couple of positive things that came out of it was talking to a neurologist, talking to an ear, nose, and throat specialist, talking to an occupational therapist, and talking to a physical therapist. And all of them together helped me drill down into some of the things that some of the lifestyle issues that lead back to this place. Yeah. And one of them is way too much screen time. Way too much screen time. And uh, I won't get into the details of it, but too much screen time, not enough sleep time, and uh, too much stress. So the blood pressure piece is a piece of it, the stress piece is a piece of it, the screen time piece is a piece of it, and the sleep time, those are four things that we kind of drilled down into. And so now it's about committing myself to the lifestyle change necessary to make sure that I don't go back to this place again. It's interesting that we can have experiences without understanding that an experience requires a lifestyle change to maintain it. One of those experiences is what we talked about last week. We call it salvation. Becoming a believer. Believing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. But what we don't realize is that that is a transition that requires a lifestyle change. The transition is what we call salvation. The lifestyle change is what we call discipleship. 
And so today's message is entitled, What is Discipleship? You know, a lot of people, and it's very, very common in American Christianity especially, to want one without the other. Salvation, but no discipleship. Salvation without discipleship is like enrolling in school but never showing up for class. Salvation without discipleship is like getting your driver's license but never learning how to drive a car. Salvation is what brings you in the door, but discipleship is what you do once you get in the door. And what we don't understand is that the implications of what it means to believe that Jesus is Lord, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Those implications are worked out over a lifetime. You see the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He has this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. He sees Jesus. He hears Jesus. Jesus speaks to him. Jesus calls him. Jesus changes his life, but he spends the rest of his life unpacking the implications of what this one experience meant. And for the rest, when you read all of Paul's letter, all of Paul's letters, all you're reading is him unpacking the implications of what he experienced on the road to Damascus when he met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20 is the passage of Scripture that I'd like to draw to your attention this morning. First in verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. And then he says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says, here's how to make a disciple. Number one, baptize them. And number two, teach them to observe or obey everything that I taught you. Baptism is step one of discipleship. But a lot of folks show up to get baptized but don't stick around to be discipled. A lot of folks just want to go down dry and come up wet, but they don't want to stick around to become a real disciple of Jesus Christ. And this is why it's so significant that we just welcome some folks into church membership this morning. Do you know what church membership is? Church membership is a formal commitment to a lifetime of discipleship in the context of a responsible local church assembly. That's what membership is. Membership is our way of saying, I'm serious about this thing, and it wasn't just an experience. This is now going to become a lifestyle. I'm going to commit myself to the lifestyle. Teach them to observe. So, Thursday, everything was coming together. We had the proper diagnosis. We had the proper medication. But... um, I hate to say it, but being in a hospital, you can see how easy it is to die in a hospital. Because, you know, I mean, a number of things. Number one, and no offense to anyone who works in a hospital, uh, but the food is designed to counteract any positive, (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> anything the medication can do for you, the food is designed to reverse it. So the, the last thing was stabilizing my blood pressure, and they were serving me, there was a, you know, they called me and said, what do you want for breakfast? So what are the options? Pancakes? Uh, French toast? No. Okay, how about eggs? All right, I'll take the eggs. What do you want for lunch? Uh, what are the options? Hamburger and French fries? I'm like, Lord Jesus, what? <laughs> They're supposed to be serving healthy food. So I said, I'll take the chicken, sa the, the chicken Caesar salad. There was enough salt on that piece of chicken to take down an elephant. <laughs> I said, let's take the guy whose blood pressure's out of whack and let's just salt him. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> let's just season him up real good. So I'm eating like a bird because everything is way too salty. And I'm, you know, but um, they had not monitored and acted proactively enough in terms of my blood pressure. From the first night I was there, my blood pressure was elevated. And the second night, they only gave me a half dose of my blood pressure medication. And the next 24 hours, I was asking them why. And it took them 24 hours to respond. By that time, I was practically at a blood pressure crisis. My blood pressure was 179 over 117. And instead of just correcting and giving me the proper medication, they rushed in and gave me a, another medication that I had never taken before that was supposed to be stronger. And they were trying to rush me out of there. The nurse said, you know what, call your wife, tell her to come back, you'll be ready to go home in 30 minutes. And then she plunged this medication into my IV and I immediately had an allergic reaction to it, severe. And my heart rate spiked, my blood pressure spiked even higher. I felt heat coming up through my body. My head felt like it was going to explode and I, I had the worst headache ever. And then I start hyperventilating. I'm probably having a panic attack at the same time. And I thought I was going to die. I thought, I'm checking out of here. That's it. They just killed me. That was, that was the thought. Now, now, whether or not I was actually in any mortal danger, probably not. Um, but that's what it felt. And the first thought I had, the only thought I had at that moment, was I wanted to open my phone and record a voice memo to my daughter. And I wanted to say some things to my little girl. I thought, if I'm checking out of here, there's some things I need her to know. And what came to my heart was Ecclesiastes 12. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come, For the days draw nigh in which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is this. Remember God now. Yeah. In the days of your youth. Before you have to look back on your life and say, I wish I wouldn't have run after all these other things. Remember now, your creator, in the days of thy youth, 
before the evil days come or the days draw nigh in which thou wilt say, I have no pleasure in them. That any time that you spend in this life ignoring God, running from God, running after your own way, doing your own thing is wasted time. And the most important word in that chapter, in that verse, is remember. Because the human person, we are notoriously forgetful. Notoriously forgetful. Just yesterday I was lying on the couch and I remembered something that someone had done for us and for our church about 15 years ago. And it dawned on me that I never properly thanked them. When somebody does something for us, it's so easy to forget. Discipleship. The whole point of discipleship. The thrust and essence of discipleship is to answer the question, now that you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, now that he has bought you with his own blood, paid the price for your sin with his own life, how do we make sure you don't forget what he did for you and go back out into the world and, and live as if he did not die for you? How do you make sure you don't forget that you've been washed from your sins? How do you make sure you remember? You see, what we don't realize is that when you read the Old Testament, you're reading the typology of everything that we have in the New Testament as reality. And the typology of salvation in the Old Testament is the exodus out of Egypt. Remember that when they were slaves in Egypt, God did not come to them with the law and say, obey these laws and then you'll get out. God did not come to them with any demand for obedience, participation, or cooperation. He simply came to them and said, I am the Lord your God, and I'm going to get you up out of here. I'm going to carry you on eagle's wings. You just watch. Yeah. And God did it. Yeah. The Israelites were chilling while God was sending plagues, <laughs> smiting the Red Sea. Frogs were crawling all over Egypt, smiting the sky, turning the sun to, blood, turning the sun to darkness, sending hail. God did it. The children of Israel were completely passive. And what we learn in, in looking at the Exodus event is that we were completely passive when it comes to our salvation, meaning none of us did anything to deserve to be saved. We didn't help Jesus by dying a little bit for our sins. He paid the whole price. All the Israelites had to do was get up and go. And that's all we had to do was walk through the door by faith. But once they come through the Red Sea and their salvation is complete, now when they come to Mount Sinai, God gives them the law. Yeah. And the law is the typology of discipleship. He takes them to Mount Sinai. He reveals himself to them on the mountain. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You shall not take the name of Yahweh Eloheinu in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he gives them the law. What is he doing when he's giving them the law? He's saying, this is how you make sure that you don't forget. It's not about rules. The essence of the law, even in the Old Testament, was not rules. The essence of the law in the Old Testament was not legalism. It was remembrance. They were designed to, to, to stimulate your remembrance of what God did, of what he brought us from. I want everyone to go home and read Deuteronomy chapter 6. I meditated on it half the day yesterday. Moses is in the wilderness with the people of Israel after having come through the Red Sea and come through the mountain, and he says to them, this is the commandment which the Lord your God has commanded to give you so that when you cross over to enter to the land to possess it, you will observe all of these things that the Lord has spoken. And he goes on to say in verse 10 of chapter 6 that when you cross over into the land that the Lord is giving you, it's filled with cities that you did not build, houses filled with good things that you did not fill, with wells that you did not dig, vineyards that you did not plant. Be careful lest you forget the Lord your God. This is literally what Moses is saying, and this is the essence of discipleship that you are never at such a dangerous place as when you're blessed. You're never at such a dangerous place as when God has brought you out of something, as when God has set you free from something. And then he brings you out and brings you into something because God never brings you out just to bring you out. He brings you out that he might bring you in. And so if he's brought you out of Egypt, he's going to bring you into a good land flowing with milk and honey. But when you get into that good land, it's so easy to forget the Lord who bought you. And so Moses says to the children of Israel, be careful that you don't forget. But there's a generational component to it as well. Because Moses also knew that the next generation of children, even children being born in the wilderness, had never been in Egypt. Didn't know how hard it was to be a slave in Egypt. And so Moses says to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, he says, this commandment that I am giving you today shall be in your heart, and you shall diligently teach it to your children. And you shall speak of it when you are in your house, and when you are on your way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall bind it upon your hand, and it shall be as a frontlet over your eyes. This commandment that I give you today shall be in your heart. You'll speak of it when you sit in your house, when you walk in your way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you will diligently teach it to your children. Later in the chapter, he says, so when your son asks you, what does this commandment mean? And what do these ordinances mean? You shall say to them, we were a slave in Egypt, but God brought us out. This is designed to teach you never to forget that we were slaves in Egypt, and I know you weren't there, and I know you didn't go through the stuff that we went through. You see, when you grew up and you had difficulty in life and you had an experience of poverty, it's easy to be desperate. But when you grow up in the lap of luxury, when you grow up and everything is given to you, it's not so easy to be desperate. 
And it doesn't mean that you're supposed to recreate poverty for your children or recreate financial difficulty for your children so that they know what it's like to suffer. It simply means that they need a different foundation for their walk with God. And that different foundation is discipleship. Discipleship facilitates the memory. Remember. And it's to every one of us. We were a slave in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We were slaves in sin, but he died for us on the cross. How can we forget that? But we will so easily forget if we simply go back to our old life, if we simply focus our hearts and minds on living as we desire to live. And so Moses says, the only way to see to it that you don't forget is that this commandment must be in your heart. This word's got to be in your heart. you got to speak of it when you sit in your house. How often do you speak of it when you sit in your house, when you walk in your way, when you lie down and when you rise up? Do you speak of what God has done for you? Do you speak of the things of God? Do you speak to your children about the things that God has done? You've got to speak of it. You've got to speak of it. You've got to meditate day and night on the things that God has done or else we forget. Second thing. Actually, I don't know if that's a second or third or fourth. First thing was we are notoriously forgetful as human beings. And it's so easy for us to forget. And the first component of discipleship is seeing to it that we don't forget what God has done for us. And we facilitate that memory through our meditation by speaking of it. But the second thing is that the human being, the human person, is very naturally an opportunist. What does it mean to be an opportunist? It simply means that your way of life is characterized by the desire to find the best opportunities that yield the best results for your life. An opportunist is looking for the right opportunity to make the most money, to live in the best house, to drive the best car, to have the best job or the best business, to have the most beautiful spouse, the most beautiful children, and put them in the best school, to live in the best place, attend the best church, so on and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's in, in, a, in essence, there's, that's this, this natural drive that's in every human person, pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But discipleship calls you to a radically different way of life. You see, opportunism was what all of the disciples were doing before Jesus called them. He said, come and follow me. But to follow me, you got to leave your nets behind. They were all fishermen. They were trying to live their best life now. They were trying to maximize their moment. That's what they were doing. They were trying to make a way. 
And Jesus disrupts the process of pursuing their greatest opportunities. But in doing so, he offers them a greater opportunity. This is the hardest thing. And in in fact, if you're going to learn this, it's going to take a lifetime. And if you think you learned it, you haven't. You got to learn it again. And you got to learn it again. It's not something, it's like cleaning your room. It needs to be recleaned tomorrow. When Jesus approaches the disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and says, Come and follow me, what we do not appreciate is that responding to that invitation required them to leave behind what they were doing. Listen, until Jesus calls you to leave something behind, he hasn't called you yet. There's always a cost. Literally, when Jesus comes to those disciples and says, come and follow me, he gives them a choice. You can stay and mend your nets, or you can come and follow me, but you cannot do both. You can continue your current way of life, or you can follow me and I'll teach you a new way of life, but you cannot do both. And they had to make a decision. The invitation to follow Jesus requires a decision. And in fact, there's an initial decision, but then there are many decisions. The initial decision is, I'm going to follow Jesus now, which means that I'm walking away from the life in which I believed that my life was my own. But working that out takes a lifetime. The opportunists ask questions like, what's the best college I could get into? But the disciple asks questions like, where would God have me to be? The opportunists ask questions like, what's the most lucrative career that I can pursue? But the disciple asks questions like, What has God called me to do? When I was in high school, I remember my parents, specifically my mother, speaking to me again and again about calling. It was one of the, my mother and my father, it was one of the core themes of my household, of our household growing up discerning what God has called you to. And so I started to pray early on that God would show me, where have you called me to go? What have you called me to do? I had a number of aspirations. I remember I had an opportunity in my senior year of high school. Had to do with music an open door that could have started me on a path that led me to a completely different trajectory and I probably would not be sitting here today had I gone through that door. I remember wanting it. 
but I also remember fearing that I wanted it. Because the question in my heart was, is this the purpose of God for my life? Is this the plan of God for my life? And as a senior in high school, I went to my pastor and I said, I need to go fast and pray because I need to hear from God. I need to know what God would have me to do. And I went down into the prayer room at the church on Friday and I didn't come out till Sunday. But when I came out Sunday, I knew that that wasn't for me. That wasn't what God was calling me to. And I went home to my parents and I said, this is not God. And they smiled because they knew in their hearts that this was not God as well. I had many such experiences of encountering a turning point in my life. Where am I going to go to college? And I went and fasted and prayed over that. God, which direction would you have me to go? I ended up, ended up at this little Bible college in Oakland, California. Not because it was the only place I could have gone, but because I was 100% confident that is where God was calling me. And when I came to the end of my Bible college years, I went into fasting and praying again to ask the Lord what was next, where was he sending me, and where was he calling me to go. And I ended up at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, not even because it was the best school in the world. I'm not even sure I would recommend it anymore, honestly. Matter of fact, I'm sure I wouldn't. <laughs> but it was where God was sending me, and I was 100% clear about that. But at every turning point, there was prayer. Why? Because that's what a disciple does. What a disciple does is continuously asks the Lord, where are you sending me? Where would you have me to go? This is the methodology of discipleship. The methodology of discipleship is no longer what's the best for me, what's the best for my family. There's even this concept of wisdom that is human wisdom that is from below and not from above. The disciple simply follows Jesus. And this is scary. It's scary because there's this human part of me, this fallen part of me that says, well, if I'm just following Jesus, I'm not going to have as good a life. I'm going to turn my back on opportunities that would have been better for me. Which indicates that what I actually believe in my heart is that Jesus does not have my best interest in mind. That there's this this, this unbelieving part of me that believes that what Jesus actually wants to do is rob me of good things. Steer me clear of anything that might be good or beneficial. Not realizing that underneath this change of methodology is actually something that's for our benefit. Intensely so. When you read Deuteronomy 6, he speaks of the Lord taking Israel into a good land. The Lord is taking you into a land that flows with milk and honey. And when you get there, what are you going to find? Cities that you have not built. 
filled with houses filled with good things that you did not fill, with wells that you did not dig, and vineyards that you did not plant. You see, before you became a disciple, everything depended upon you. You have nothing that you didn't build. That's the methodology of your life. If you want it, you got to work for it, and you will never have anything that you did not work for. You got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You got to work hard, and you've got to obtain everything by hard work and determination. That is the standard life. But a disciple doesn't think that way. To the disciple, Jesus says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? All these things the Gentiles are seeking. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. For which one of you by worrying can add a single day to his life? Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. But yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed as one of these. If this is the way God clothes the lilies of the field, which are here today, but tomorrow are thrown into the oven, how much more will God clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Yeah. Do you realize that the disciples quit their jobs, their businesses to follow Jesus? And the question is, how am I going to make money? And you know what his answer was? Don't worry. Just come and follow me. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to quit your job. Because Jesus is probably not telling you to quit your job. <laughs> but I'm saying that the, the, that the design of the disciple is I have decided to follow Jesus. And where he leads me, I will follow. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. Every disciple who is truly following Jesus is right now in the process of being led into a land of milk and honey yes. where there are cities that you did not build, houses filled with good things that you did not fill, wells that you did not dig, Amen. and vineyards that you did not plant. Amen. Everyone, every disciple, and when you step off that path, you're on your own. You're going to have to dig every well. You're going to have to build every house. You're going to have to plant every vineyard. And you're going to have to chart the path. Jesus lifts the anxiety by saying, come follow me. What I've got for you is better. It's better than anything that you could have planned for yourself, better than anything that you could have built for yourself, better than anything you could have acquired for yourself. Come follow me. Amen. Every day, follow me. Staying present with God. And then the last thing. Discipleship is about going deep with God. You know, there's a lot of high Christians, but there's not very many deep Christians. Being high is about having an experience. 
when you actually meet Jesus, you experience a spiritual high. When he actually comes into your heart and washes you and cleanses you of your sins, you experience a spiritual high. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk about in a coming Sunday, you experience a spiritual high. And all of us, very naturally, the human person desires to be high. We're naturally very forgetful. We're naturally opportunists. And we naturally desire highs. We all want to be high. And if I can't get it from drugs, I'll get it somewhere. Hopefully I can get it from the Holy Spirit. That's really what we want, is the Holy Spirit to be a replacement for all of the different ways we used to get high in life. And, some, you know, for a while the Lord gives you that. Discipleship begins at the place where he lifts that. Where all of a sudden you stop feeling the high. Now he's going to take you deep. And if you really want to go deep with God, you've got to be willing to stay present with him through the lows. Going deep with God is simple. And at the end of the day, discipleship is simple. Stay present with God. That's it. Stay present with God. Are you disappointed? I totally get it. Yeah. Stay present with God through that disappointment. Yes. Are you discouraged? Totally get it. Understandable. Stay present with God through that discouragement. And I know that there's some hyphy Christians who will just try to convince you not to be discouraged or not to be disappointed, to try to just put you into a new high, bring you back into a new high, not realizing that when God wants to take you deep, Sometimes he takes away the high and says, you're going to walk with me through some low places. But guess what happens? You're going to learn how to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but fear no evil, because you're going to discover that I'm with you, that my rod and my staff, they comfort you. And the greatest problem is that we misunderstand the nature of discipleship. And so when we walk through our lows, we think God has abandoned us. And once we, we're convinced that God has abandoned us, we abandon him in return. And so few Christians actually go deep with God because very few Christians learn how to remain present with God through the lows. We go astray during the lows. Like sheep that have gone astray, we wander off from the fold, and he has to go out looking for us and hoisting us on his shoulders and carrying us back to the pen when we're walking through the low points. But guess what? If you simply make the decision to remain present with God through the lows, I've often said that God sometimes takes us into a place of deep pain, but then he takes away the pain and leaves the deep. At the end of the day, discipleship is so simple. Just walk with Jesus. Every day. All day. 24-7. 365. When you're sitting in your house, sit with Jesus. When you're walking in the way. When you lie down. And when you rise up. 
And this is the last thing. Discipleship is not something that you were designed to do or is or even possible for you to do by yourself. Discipleship is not a solitary individual journey between me and Jesus. It's just me and God, just me and Jesus. Find that in the Bible. It's just Jesus and me. That's all it is. Just me and Jesus, me and Jesus. We don't stop to recognize that the first thing he did was call 12 and put them together. The first thing he taught them is that if you're going to make it on this discipleship journey, you must be as committed to each other as you are to me. That's discipleship. The disciples must be as committed to each other as they are to Jesus. Their commitment to one another must never supersede their commitment to Christ. The order has got to be in the right place. I'm committed to you because I'm committed to Christ. But at the end of the day, if I'm not committed to you, it simply indicates that I'm not truly committed to Christ. So Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. You want a new commandment? Here you go. Love one another. Remember, the law on Mount Sinai was the type of discipleship. God says, this is how you walk with me. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new law, a new covenant law. It's not like the one I gave you in the wilderness. It's not like the one I gave you on Mount Sinai. Here's the new law. You love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lays down his life for his friend. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. We do not appreciate the degree to which discipleship to Jesus is intensely communal. We do not take John 13, 35 seriously. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another that you're committed to one another, that you serve one another. But we still think, most Christians still think like consumers. I come to church to consume because I'm still thinking I just come to consume a little salvation and get a little Holy Spirit and get a little word. No, the whole point of us coming together is not to be individual consumers. But this is an opportunity for us to be disciples by demonstrating our commitment to one another. So when we do stuff like community groups and people say, I I don't think I can commit to that. I don't think I could commit to that. You know, once a week for an hour to get together with some believers to talk about Jesus is a lot to ask. (laughs) Jesus called the 12 to leave everything and do it full time. But for us, one hour is like, oh, I don't know. It's too much. Turning on the Zoom and just don't know if I can commit to that. One of the greatest, most troubling components of contemporary Christianity is that we are the most non-committal culture, perhaps, in the history of civilization. 
we are so afraid to committing to anything. And what we don't realize is at the end of the day, we're afraid to commit ourselves to Jesus. Discipleship is a journey that we all need each other to take. Imagine the children of Israel trudging their way through the desert for 40 years as a bunch of individuals. None committed to one another. And then lastly, I know I said that. You can start playing metacrationally. I really want you to read Deuteronomy 6. This is going to tie it all up and tell us exactly how to do it. He talks about the commandment, the statutes, the ordinances. And he says, you're to observe these. We didn't get to talk about the word observe. Jesus said it in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Teach them to observe all things which I've commanded you. To observe simply means to watch, observe it. Don't take your eyes off of it. Just keep watching it. And then Moses says, this is how you observe it. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shama. Hear, O Israel. Which means you've got to give God your attention. Discipleship, the essence of discipleship, is giving God your attention. Give Him your attention. Stop what you're doing, because I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you're used to. That's discipleship. When God speaks, everything stops. And in order to facilitate attention in the Old Testament community in the wilderness, they had what was called the assembly of the Lord. And Moses said, anybody who doesn't show up to the assembly of the Lord is cut off. Everyone stops what they're doing to come to the assembly of the Lord. Why? Because otherwise you don't hear. You don't shama. Shama Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Achad. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear. Give God your attention. Discipleship is simply the process by which we give God more and more of our attention for the rest of our lives until we get to heaven and he has our undivided attention. We're living in the most distracted age in the history of civilization. More distractions. That's how I ended up in the hospital. Screens. Distracted by little screens and medium-sized screens and larger screens and big screens and we got every kind of screen you could possibly imagine I got a screen in my pocket and I got a screen in my car and then I got to go go home and I got a screen on one desk and a screen on another desk and then go into the living room there's a big screen there and there's screens everywhere we're constantly looking for something to distract us Shama Yisrael
Turn off the screens and listen. And to you in the online campus, it's wonderful that you get to have church at home. But are you really able to sit and listen and give God your undivided attention? Or is it just something else that's going on on the screen in the background of your life? Are you going about your business or are you stopping to actually give God your undivided attention? I'm not saying don't, you know, abandon the online campus, but I'm saying shama, attention, stop, listen. And then he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, with all of your heart, with all your mind, and with all of your soul. First, you give God your attention. Secondly, you give God your affection. You shall love the Lord your God. That's the commandment. Do you realize that that is the greatest commandment of the law? That in Matthew 22, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He quotes that verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all. See, when we think of commandments, we think of a bunch of do's and don'ts, a bunch of restrictions, a bunch of stuff we're not allowed to do. But the heart of the commandment is this. Give God your attention and give him your affection. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. You shall love, and then Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which follows him teaching his disciples that you gotta be as committed to one another as you are to me. Loving God and loving each other. This is the irreducible core of the Christian faith. Giving your affection. Giving God all of your attention. Discipleship. It's a lifelong process of becoming like Jesus. It's a lifelong process of becoming like Jesus within a fellowship of like-minded believers. Oh, and this is the last thing. I promise. For most of us, faith comes first and then discipleship. But actually for the disciples of Jesus, discipleship came first and then faith. And that means and even if you don't believe, even if you're struggling in your heart with the whole faith thing, just start the discipleship journey. He says to the disciples, come follow me. Don't worry, I'll make you. Remember when he first told Peter, Peter had never met the guy before. He climbs in his boat and starts teaching the multitudes on the shore. And then he says, you know, here's the miraculous catch of fish and the fish fill his boat. Peter had fished all night and caught no fish. And Peter says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, Peter. Just come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And then you get to John chapter 2, where he takes them to the city called Cana in Galilee, and they go to a wedding, and they run out of wine. 
at the wedding. Isn't it terrible when you run out of wine at a wedding? Anyway, he turns the water to wine. The keeper of the wedding, the, the, the master of the feast said, wow, you know, typically people bring out the best wine first, but you've saved the best for last. And John explains that miracle in these words. This was the first of Jesus' miracles by which he revealed his glory to his disciples and his disciples believed in him. They followed him first. They believed in him second. Let me tell you something. If you're following him, you will believe in him. You don't have to wait for faith to begin discipleship. You start following him, he's going to show you his glory, and you will believe in him. As they walked with him, they saw miracles and their faith grew. As they walked with him, they heard his teaching and their faith grew. As they walked with him, they saw the things that he did and their faith grew. As you walk with him, you see and your faith grows. Discipleship does not necessarily come after faith. Sometimes discipleship starts and then faith comes. And so today the invitation is Whoever will, let him come. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. Whoever will, let him come. Father, today I thank you that you're here with us and that you love us with an everlasting love. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just fall on this place right now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fall on every heart, fall on every soul. And let this be a moment a moment of getting serious with you and a moment of truly committing ourselves to the lifestyle of discipleship. I prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, some of us have forgotten today. We forgot that you bought us. We forgot that you paid the price. We've forgotten that we've been cleansed of our former sins. We've forgotten that our lives are not our own. We forgot We've been distracted by so many things. We are like sheep that have gone astray. But now today, Father, we are returning to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. I pray, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would lead us like a shepherd and that we would truly be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. Because only those who follow can truly say that you are our shepherd. I pray that we would follow you and that we would follow you together and that we would be just as committed to following you together as we are to following you. We love you today. and We give you all praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We just arise in the presence of the Lord and just lift your hands like this. And I want you to pray a simple prayer between you and God. God, where are you calling me today? Where are you, call where are you calling me in this season? Wherever you lead, I will follow. God, I give you my attention. God, I desire to remain with you. I, re I desire to be present with you. So Holy Spirit, throughout this week, help us to remain present with you. Help us to give you our attention. Help us to follow you and go wherever you call us, God. Break off that spirit of opportunist 
from each one of our hearts and our minds and make us the true disciples of Jesus Christ in this day, in this age. We thank you. We love you. Wherever you lead, we will follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. If any one of you, you feel like, man, I just need to hear God and you need someone to pray with you, I'll be more than happy to pray with you here and hear God with you. So if you need any prayer, I'm right here. <laughs>